Good morning. Welcome back to the program. Today we are a culture steeped in sex. It's part of almost every aspect of our politics, our culture, and our economy. It's about selling cars and also dispensing of medical care. But just 60 years ago, it was a subject that was all but taboo. Not only didn't we dare speak its name in polite company, but we knew very little about it, how it worked both psychologically and physiologically. Then William Masters came along and with his partner, Virginia Johnson, changed all that. They not only medicalized the discussion and understanding of sex, but unleash the power of female sexuality in ways that would forever change society. Few have studied and understood this better than our guest, Thomas Mayer. Thomas Mayer is the author of the critically acclaimed Dr. Spock in American Life, as well as the Kennedys, America's Emerald Kings. He's an award-winning investigative journalist at Newsday and the author of Masters of Sex, The Life and Times of William Masters and Virginia Johnson, The Couple Who Taught America to Love, the book has just been re-released in paperback. It's also the basis of a Showtime original series that begins later this month. It is my pleasure to welcome Thomas Mayer back to this program. Thomas, thanks so much for being here. Jeff, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Great to have you here. One of the things that is always so remarkable in this story is the way sexuality permeates so much of our culture today is that going back 55, 60 years, how little we knew about it, how taboo a subject it was. Uh, that's very much so. Um, the, we lived in the, the time in the 1950s in which um, there was a lot of, as you say, taboos re- uh, associated with the discussion of sexuality. Um, and yet it's interesting, even in our time today, in which um, there is, we're awash with sexual imagery and, and there's a lot of information about the the how-to of sexuality, a lot of people still are very troubled about their physical expressions of love with one another and, and also um, just even the level of sexual dysfunction. Ironically, the level of sexual dysfunction uh, among adults in America, according to the last study, which was about 10 years ago, was still as high as it was back in the 50s and 60s when Masters and Johnson uh, began. So, you know, that time period uh, was a, a more conservative time period, but in many ways, uh, the questions of sex still bedevil us today. One of the things that, that William Masters set out to do, and one of the things that he realized early on, as you talk about it, was how little medicine knew about it, that, that in fact these various dysfunctions at the time were, were things that medicine had really never looked at. There was no clear understanding, either psychologically or physiologically, of what was going on. Yeah, you know, uh, Masters felt very strongly about that. He was probably the top... Uh, OBGYN in St. Louis. He was the doctor based at Washington University in St. Louis that a lot of the wealthiest women would, uh, would go to. And he found that he and his colleagues were often confronted with questions that had to do with, um, problems in the bedroom that, that, uh, various different sexual problems and that, uh, he and his colleagues, medicine in general, was often being asked questions, uh, by couples who were uh, very interested, obviously, in becoming parents. A lot of people, married couples, a lot of the sexual problems uh, becomes tied into the whole aspect of whether or not they'll become parents. And so he felt that medicine uh, needed to have the answers 
that they didn't have the answers of anything. The posture of medicine was to avoid subjects about it. When people had questions about uh, uh, sexual problems, uh, they would either go to a, a religious figure uh, or perhaps to a psychiatrist that was trained in Freudian psychology. But medicine was never stepping up to the front. He felt it was important uh, for medicine to not only do so, but to come up with the informed clinical answers that could help people uh, with provide information so that they could make judgments about their own lives. And in this way, his work was more medical-based, for example, than the work Kinsey was doing. Yes, very much so. Kinsey, uh, his surveys, which in- involve uh, literally thousands of people, nevertheless uh, were, uh, were not in, uh, clinical studies. They were, they were surveys of people's attitudes about sexuality. And as we all know, a lot of people do lie about their own sexuality and, and matters of sex. Um, what Masters realized was that to deal with it, to provide the medical answers uh, for people, that medicine first has to first had to understand how the body worked in terms of sexual response. That 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 fact had never been done before, and before they could come up with therapies to help people, they first had to understand clinically how the body worked. And so they launched with, he launched with Virginia Johnson, a 10-year study that involved uh, hundreds of men and women who were volunteers in their sex study, fundamentally to understand how the body worked during sex. And uh, it was quite quite an experiment. And this goes to the idea that, that you were talking about before, that since people inherently lie about sex, in fact, the only way to get to the bottom of it, the only way to get the information, was direct observation, and that's what what Masters realized he had to do. Exactly. That's. I mean, that's something that also uh, medical people, but particularly anybody in the scientific world, would honor and respect and value and would have impact. Um, you know, we live in a. Uh, uh, it's. Uh, in, you know, in a society that we we value science and and fact-based uh, conclusions uh, that he could that he could show and he could document, uh, he felt would have a great impact. And indeed, uh, their book, when it came out in 1966, their first book, which dealt with uh, documenting human sexual response, it had a huge impact all across America, and it really helped define that whole era that we call the sexual revolution of the 60s. And, of course, to do this, they needed volunteers, and that's really where Virginia Johnson comes into the story. Sure. You know, Virginia Johnson was the secretary who was just essentially uh, looking for a job when she went back to school. She was 32 years of age, twice divorced, uh, two children at home, looking to go back to get a degree. And to pay the bills, she got a job as a secretary filling out insurance forms. William Masters realized he needed a female partner. Um, his wife didn't want to do it. They, they were just in the process of having children themselves. There were very few female doctors, and the few that were out there, they didn't want to get involved in something like this. This was playing with, uh, as Masters said himself, with uh, explosives. It was like nitroglycerin. The whole idea of doing a sex study uh, was, was really, and still is, quite a remarkable thing. 
So Virginia Johnson came along, and she showed uh, an affinity for dealing with people, understanding what made people tick. Uh, Bill Masters was a hard science guy. He was a guy that liked, he was comfortable in the lab, whereas Virginia Johnson was a, was a people person, and she was able to convince a lot of graduate students and nurses and faculty wives and people within the St. Louis community to become part of their study. Um, and for that, Masters loved her. He just uh, was amazed by her success. She also showed a native genius for the work, uh, particularly when it dealt with their therapy. And Virginia understood, um, just from not only the interviews that they did with with the volunteers and the patients that, that they had, but also from doing a fair amount of outside reading on sociology, psychology, things like urology, that um, they were able to come up with a variety of different treatments that were very successful, in fact, 80% successful. And the fact that a, uh, a secretary who never wound up getting a college degree should be the main force of putting this together is perhaps one of the most amazing parts of this story. Her, her knowledge really also built on itself in that she was the one taking all the histories of these volunteers, which gave her tremendous insight into all of this. She did, and, um, you know, she she just had uh, an ability to understand people, to get them to communicate. She she was a great listener, uh, something that is a bit of a lost art in a way, and she... Um, she was the complement to Masters in many ways. Uh, it was a male-female team, obviously, there. But it also, he, as I mentioned, he was the hard science guy. She was the person more psychologically attuned. Um, and um, she also helped put t- into words a lot of the, uh, the insights that they were finding. And she pushed mas- Masters uh, to face up to some of the conclusions that their own uh, evidence was showing, particularly in the realm of female sexuality. The fact that uh, Virginia Johnson was an independent-minded woman about her own sexuality um, and was honest about what she was hearing from the women that they were debriefing in their studies, this really helped inform a lot of their results. Masters and Johnson, historically, really brought equality into the bedroom. Uh, Before they came along, it was very much a male world. It was very much dominated by uh, Freud's theories of uh, female sexuality. And they showed that Freud was wrong on a lot of different things, but also that actually women had a greater capacity, uh, at least uh, you know, in terms of documenting the people that they looked at, that women had a greater capacity for orgasm, for uh, sexual uh, matters in general. And um, this was quite uh, remarkable uh, in the time. In fact, their, their book that they wrote in 1966 said that uh, male and female responses were equal. But when you actually read their evidence, what they were finding was that the female response was actually greater than the male. And in the midst of this story is also the story of Masters and Johnson themselves and the way their relationship evolved. I was always fascinated with, uh, in regards to Masters and Johnson's personal lives, about how this idea of 
a man and a woman um, who are studying love and sex, who are not married. They're doing so in a lab. And then they eventually marry, uh, and uh, they're married for 20 years. Then they get divorced. They become the gurus of, uh, of sex and love in America. Uh, they divorce, and yet nobody knows the reasons why. And that was a big part of the, uh, the curiosity, my initial curiosity, in pursuing this project. I thought that they, as, uh, as a man and a woman together, kind of uh, was em- emblematic of a lot of different relationships uh, in terms of seeking equality among each other, working together. You know, a lot of men and women uh, who are married work together these days particularly. So that, that whole aspect of work and private lives all coalescing together was something I thought was uh, particularly ahead of its time, but really spoke to our time. How was their work perceived at the time? We talked about it being taboo. Washington University, which is where they were doing the research, at one point got nervous and and, and sort of sent them off campus somewhere else. Talk a little bit about how people saw the work they were doing. Well, initially it was very hush-hush. It had the secrecy of a CIA operation in a sense. Um, They did it late at night, uh, after hours, at the... uh, at Maternity Hospital in St. Louis, where Bill Masters was an OBGYN. And um, so a lot of people were not aware of what was going on for quite a a while there. And um, because Masters was a fertility expert as well, and because he would counsel couples and such, um, I think people were slow to catch on. Eventually, Masters and Johnson presented their work to the faculty at Washington University. And Bill Masters was quite convinced that he would be hailed as, uh, as a genius, that, uh, that he was in line for a Nobel Prize in medicine. And quite arguably, he had a, a very good case for that. But uh, rather than being hailed, the faculty uh, in St. Louis was uh, more than half of them were appalled by it. And it became politically untenable for Masters and Johnson to state that, which is really amazing. Here they are at a school of medicine. Here he is, the top OBGYN. They're coming up with this 10-year long-term study of human sexuality, the essence of how our our, uh, species progresses, and yet he's rejected. And they wound up having to go across the street and creating their own foundation that eventually became the Masters and Johnson Institute. Um, it really says a lot about academia, about our society, and, and also about human jealousies and petty jealousies, uh, professional jealousies. Um, that's all part of their story in, in this respect. They also kept pushing the envelope, particularly in the use of sex surrogates. Well, they did. Um, uh, Masters felt that uh, it was his job as a doctor to find anything that will work for the patient, um, you know, I mean, to some extent, you may even see that with medical marijuana, for instance. There are some doctors who will feel if it works for their patient with cancer or, or whatever the, the problem that a patient may have, that it's the obligation of a doctor to find that solution. It was in that context that Masters and Johnson felt that sex surrogates were an appropriate way of dealing, particularly with men who were having performance problems. 
This was before the age of Viagra and the uh, the realm of ph- pharmaceutical answers for uh, uh, this type of uh, sexual dysfunction. Um, and the surrogates were particularly uh, helpful for these uh, male patients who were, had, uh, who were desperate uh, and needed the help of Masters and Johnson. And the, the surrogates um, came from primarily, uh, about half of them came from the original sex uh, study, the, the sexual response study. And another half of them were, um, well, about ha- more than half of them were college educated or had a graduate degree. Uh, one or two of them were actual uh, doctors who were affiliated with Masters and Johnson or, you know, the, the university in St. Louis. So it was quite a, you know, it was quite a remarkable aspect of that volunteerism uh, that we found uh, there. Remarkably also, uh, Masters and Johnson never had any male sex surrogates. It was all towards uh, dealing with the male problems, uh, not any female problems. And uh, when I asked Virginia Johnson about that, she, the feeling was that uh, that that would be too explosive to have mm. a male sex surrogate. That that even they and their clients weren't ready for something like that. So um, you know, this, the, so much of their studies reflect who and what we are uh, as a society, and and so many of the taboos about sex are reflected in their studies. Talk a little bit about Virginia Johnson and the way in which she pushed to continue to explore this whole arena of female sexuality, because that was really the cutting-edge aspect of their work in many respects. It it very much was. Um, You know, there are some people who will get the impression, at least from the outset, that Virginia Johnson may have been some sexual libertine, uh, that she would be outside the envelope, and no, quite, quite the contrary. She was, she was able to play the good girl. Uh, you know, certainly uh, she would go out with judges and other doctors, and and so, uh, like many women, she knew how to play the game of society and such. But um, she was uh, uh, remarkable for being honest about her sexuality at a time when most were not. She grew up on a farm. She's, uh, you know, when I asked her, was, did any of this kind of jar you or f- did you find it surprising? And she said, look, Tom, I grew up on a farm. I was, you know, you're, you're used to this aspect of animal husbandry, uh, if you will, that, that's involved in watching human sexuality. Um, but she was also... Uh, willing to express and be an independent-minded woman. She was, as I mentioned, when they began, she was 32 years of age. She had been twice married. So, um, and that was one of the things that Masters wanted. He wanted somebody who was a mature woman who wouldn't be overly uh, shy about the subject, but would look at it candidly, honestly, and openly. And that's what, what Virginia Johnson did. Her, her, imp, her impact on their work was very much underlying the power of female sexuality. Um, I think she was the voice that was saying, well, let's look at the data. And the data is showing that uh, the capability of women for orgasm is much greater than has been previously known, that women 
uh, are capable of multiple orgasms, that the second and third orgasm, when that happens, uh, is reportedly more intense than the first, and perhaps even more volatile, that their findings show that it wasn't even necessary uh, uh, for a male to be there for a woman to have orgasm. They threw out the whole uh, 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 Freudian view of of orgasm, female orgasm, in regards to the, you know, Freud would make a delineation between a a clitoral and a a vaginal orgasm, as if there was a, uh, that the the clitoral was a more immature form of orgasm, and he would make this this psychological distinction. Um, They showed empirically by direct observation that there was total nonsense, and it it literally turned... uh, Freud's views upside down. And bear in mind, when they were publishing this, uh, Freud's views uh, were preeminent in American society. They were not only reflective in psychology, but in medicine, in cultural movies. Many movies were influenced by Freud's view about sexuality so that they could come along with this empirical evidence, primarily pushed by Virginia Johnson, was, was an absolutely amazing thing. Uh, and is a big part of their study. And in doing this, she became a kind of iconic hero among feminists at the time. Well, she, you know, she was, um, she was, uh, when when the uh, women's liberation movement came along in the early 70s, she kind of shied away from the political aspects of that. But like a lot of female pioneers, she really was a feminist icon, uh, the same way that we might see somebody like Barbara Walters is uh, in the realm of media. In other words, women who broke a lot of barriers. And it's in that respect that I think Virginia Johnson is a feminist icon. I know Lizzie Kaplan, who plays Virginia Johnson in the upcoming Showtime uh, series based upon my book, I know she feels that way. She She's about the same age as Virginia was when she started her work. Uh, uh, Lizzie, I believe, is 31. And um, Lizzie feels very strongly uh, uh, about Virginia Johnson's example and that, that, she's, that her life speaks a lot to the independent-minded women today uh, who make their own choices uh, uh, about sex and about their love lives and um, and that Virginia Johnson uh, was a big part of empowering women uh, in that regard. And she was, if anything, she's a uh, uncelebrated uh, feminist hero. I think that's about to change, though, uh, by the end of this month when the series starts. And I think people will have a newfound appreciation for Virginia. One of the things that, that cast a pall over so much of their work came in 1979 when they published their book on homosexuality. Talk a little about that. Well, their th- their therapy was remarkably successful, 80% success rate. And Masters, uh, who was in the position of realizing that the therapy primarily was the brainchild of Virginia, uh, was so taken by its success that he felt that for some patients, a handful of patients who were somewhere between, felt they were somewhere between 
homosexuality and heterosexuality, but that they were, say, married and felt that they wanted to uh, be more uh, heterosexual, that somehow that therapy would be able to, quote, convert gay people to uh, heterosexuality. And uh, their study came out in 1979. As, as a matter of fact, an entire uh, program on, me, on Meet the Press, no less than Meet the Press, was devoted to that book and their, their views uh, in, which they, uh, in which they were asked about their conversion, the gay conversion uh, therapy. As it turns out in my investigative reporting for this book, my book, I found out that those handful of cases that are cited in their book uh, there was no documentation for it. There were no files about it. And one of their associates, uh, Dr. Robert Kolodny, uh, came across that, asked Masters about it. He couldn't account for it. Uh, when I interviewed Virginia Johnson for my book, she was very uncomfortable about it. Uh, and I, it, there's a long, dramatic scene that's played out in the book uh, about what happened there. But the book uh, in 1979 was so far along that... They didn't change it, uh, despite the protestations of Virginia and and uh, their associate, Robert Kolodny, um, and Masters published it. Uh, and it caused a great deal of trouble, I think, over the, over the last 30 years. Um, it's only recently do we see uh, people thoroughly disavowing this idea of uh, gay conversion therapy. It was embraced by... A, particularly a lot of right-wing folks as, uh, who would say that, well, that homosexuality could be changed if patients really wanted to change. And they would point to Masters and Johnson's work. So they, they, that, that 1979 study caused a lot of mischief, a lot of difficulties for a lot of people. Um, we, you know, it's my book that broke that story in 2009. And I'd like to think it, it contributed to some of the changes that we've recently seen in people repudiating this whole idea of gay conversion therapy. What impact did it have on the overall body of their work, the degree to which it called into question some of their other work? Well, it doesn't because even the same people that, uh, that were questioning about this handful of cases in that one book were very well aware, had heard uh, and seen the the tape recordings of the sessions with their therapy had seen all the files. Uh, in fact, uh, the the, um, the, uh, the the particularly their first book was very very well documented. I interviewed people uh, uh, from the Kinsey Institute who also came uh, to Masters and Johnson's Institute, saw their uh, their their whole studies being done and such. And so, um, you know, I, I think their work was very rock solid, um, and it was very disappointing. Uh, I think it was really a matter of ego and hubris on the part of Masters that he felt that their work was so successful that it might be able to, quote, help people that wanted this type of uh, therapy, and that he felt as a doctor that it, it would be uh, helpful for those very small group of patients, um, it's unfortunate that it does cast uh, a bit of a cloud over their work. Of course, it's my book <laughs> that pointed that out. So, um, you know, I often am confronted with the question about that, but it's, you know, it's my book 
that uh, pointed out that problem. And I think it's, um, you know, I think seen in the whole context of their work, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an unfortunate episode. But overall, I think their work uh, was tremendously positive, had a lot of impact uh, uh, on helping people's lives, and had a, a, a huge impact on medicine. And talk finally about the dissolution of their relationship after their 20-year marriage. Well, after 20 years, Masters and Johnson had been at the heights of our society in terms of, you know, being on every television show, the cover of Time magazine, uh, Phil Donahue, they were constantly on and such. Um, they worked together as well, and there was a, a fair degree of, I think, competition between them. I think there was a matter of ego. And um, their their marriage was as much a business relationship as it had was a, a, an affair of the heart. They um, they got married partly because um, Virginia was going to get married to another man, and Bill John, uh, Bill um, Masters panicked about that and decided to leave his wife and get married to Virginia. So there's a big soap opera that's played out in my book that uh, it was a big part of their lives, if you will. And at the end there, um, Masters decides to go back and find his lost love of his youth, and he leaves Virginia and divorces her after 20 years, when at, at the same time that Virginia had been thinking of leaving him. So when Masters uh, divorces her, uh, she goes uh, looking for the boy who you meet at the very beginning of my book, the boy with fiery red hair uh, from high school that everybody thought Virginia would get uh, everybody thought Virginia would get married to him, and she goes looking for this boy uh, who she thought would never leave the farm in Missouri where they grew up. Turns out he became a CIA agent, uh, never married, and she goes looking for him. And the end of my book, uh, you find out exactly what happened to the boy with fiery red hair. And Thomas, tell us about the Showtime series when it begins. Sure, it begins uh, Sunday, uh, September 29th right after Homeland. It stars Michael Sheen as Dr. William Masters and Lizzie Kaplan as Virginia Johnson. It's uh, written by Michelle Ashford, who it's adapted from my book, uh, Masters of Sex. Uh, the pilot is directed by John Madden, who, uh, among his other credits, is the, uh, the director of the Oscar-winning film Shakespeare in Love. I think people that enjoyed that film will see that there's even a certain uh, similarity to the series. I think the series is trying to be almost like a movie uh, serialized every week. It has that look to it. And um, we're very excited about it. I think it's a very true and very realistic, open-eyed uh, uh, telling of the Masters and Johnson story. Thomas Mayer, the book is Masters of Sex. It is just reissued in paperback. The Showtime original series begins later this month. Thomas, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Jeff, thank you so much for inviting me. Thank Good you. Luck. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.